0: Already in the comic game or a comedy nerd? Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get behind the bits.
1: Hey, BTB Buddies, we're sponsored by Podcorn. If you ever listen to a big name podcast, you know they have a lot of sponsors. The reason why brands choose to advertise on podcasts is that podcast advertising is up to three times more effective than TV, print, or radio advertising. If you're a brand and you checked out advertising on those big name podcasts, you found out that the cost may be way outside your budget. And if you're a podcast that would like to get some of that ad revenue, you found out that unless you have at least 10,000 listens per episode, advertisers won't even talk to you. Podcorn came about as a solution for advertisers with any budget from 100 bucks to a million bucks and podcasters with listeners in the hundreds or in the millions. Here's how it works. If you're an advertiser, go to podcorn.com and sign up as an advertiser. You enter in pertinent information about your brand and the message you want podcasts to communicate for you. You can then choose what type of advertising you'd like. You can get a host-read ad, an interview, a topical discussion, or all the above. Then you can make your sponsorship live and wait for podcasters to give you their pitch. You decide who you want to work with. If you have a podcast, go to podcorn.com and register as a podcast. You'll create a profile with info about your podcast and the people who listen. Then you can start browsing sponsorship opportunities right away. As an advertiser or podcast, you communicate directly about the ad. There is no middle person. This is so easy you wouldn't believe it until you go to Podcorn and sign up. Guess where I got this sponsorship? podcorn i'm being paid to read this ad right now and i'm just a little independent podcast check out the show notes for a direct link to podcorn and sign up today i know i'm glad i did abtp buddies i'm back again i wanted to let you know that my friend jeff Dewaskin from the show live from detroit the jeff dawaskin show has had a few great comedians on recently Now, I listen to all of his interviews, but I especially like when he talks to comics because he's been a comedian for 18 years himself. So Jeff's had Alonzo Bowden, Brent Ernst from Cobra Kai, and Jackie the Joke Man Martling on in just the last four weeks. I'm a huge fan of Alonzo Bowden, and I love that interview. If you go back a few episodes, Jeff had the fantastic Dave Landau on the show, too. That was another good one. Like I said, I really like the comedian interviews, but Jeff talks to actors, screenwriters, Star Wars experts, just all kinds of really cool people on the show. So hit pause right now and search for Live from Detroit, The Jeff DeWaskin Show, and let me know what you think. It's a good one. Hey, BTB Buddies. I've got Robert G. Lee with me today. Now, Robert was a guest on my 45th episode of the podcast but just as a refresher, Robert is a veteran in the stand-up comedy world, as well as an author, screenwriter, and actor, among other things. So he's warmed up audiences for some of the best sitcoms over the past 30 years, including like Cheers, and performed stand-up on TV and all over the world. But today we're going to talk about a virtual comedy class he's putting on starting on March 23rd, and the reason why we're going to talk about it is because I'm taking it. So I wanted to bring Robert up and talk about that. Robert, how you doing? doing
2: I am doing very well thanks for uh, putting me on for the plug this is great yeah I you know
1: it's funny I told you before we started recording that I saw your ad for a comedy class and even though I've been kind of performing comedy for five years off and on I have never taken a class and one of the guys that I interviewed, his name was Justin Williams. He's been doing it for 15 years, and he ended up taking the same class he took when he first started. And, ah. and I said, why did you do that? And he said, well, because I have forgotten everything I learned in that class, and I don't think I write as well because I hadn't thought about the class for so long. I think if somebody who's been doing it for 15 years can say, hey, I need to take a class, then somebody like me who's been doing it for five years as a hobby could probably take the class too.
2: <laughs> and that's, uh, I'm glad you have that kind of humble attitude. And it's something he says, I want to learn because some people go, Oh no, no, you know, I've been doing this for five years. I got it down. And the, the vet comics look at those people and go, you have so far to go. You have no idea what you don't know. Uh-huh. And that's really what the purpose of the class is to cut. I, I always tell people, you're going to cut a couple years off your journey to be a headliner because you can learn it through the school of hard knocks. You can. And, right. and after, after about seven years, you kind of start feeling your oats. You go, okay, I think I got this down. But you're always learning new lessons. My purpose for the class is to ke- get those people who are serious about it and give them the fundamentals. I mean, there, there, there are ways to write sketches and write stand-up that if you don't know those tricks, you just, you just keep fumbling along until you kind of figure it out. Right. But it's like a coach teaching the fundamentals – and so I take people in the class from taking your persona and developing it into a comedy persona because there's difference, a difference between who you are in life and who you are on stage. Mm-hmm. And then we go through the nuts and bolts of how to be a comedian and what it takes to make a living at it. And it was, uh, I was talking to um, one of the guys who took my class. He goes, you sold me when you said, you don't know who I am, but I've been making my living as a comedian for over three decades. And he goes, that was it. That sold me. I'm going to take your class. So yeah. that, I, I you know, because I've been in TV shows and I've I've seen the best of the best in stand-up comedy clubs, and I have hopefully um, th- the three decades of experience can can help you move along and find a way to relook at your material with a fresh eye and go, oh, if I fix this, I'll, I'll, basically I'll be twice as funny. It's, I always tell people it's the it's the Seinfeld theory of comedy, which is be funny for money. You know, it's yeah. like, and, and the way you do it is. You come up with the best material and perform it the best way you know how and people will start to notice. Right.
1: I am the type of person right now that has enough going on in my life that I need something scheduled in order for me to actually sit down and do what is part of my comedy career. And I I need to be held accountable, and I need homework, I need all that kind of stuff in order to get myself recentered because I just haven't been in front of an audience for so long.
2: That is, ex- and you know what? You're doing it in a class, and I'm doing it with some of my comedy friends because um, one of the things that I want to do the re- the reason I've been able to stay alive during the pandemic is because of Sirius FM radio and they've been playing my comedy, Mm -hmm. that I've made residuals over this last year. And without it, I don't know how I was going to make it. But I am with a group of four different um, professional comedians. They're all vets. And we meet, with like you're talking about, with accountability and everything else. We meet every two or three weeks, and we go over material so that I can get my next album ready, so I can put it on serious, so I can keep getting residuals. So Mm -hmm. it's all this it's never ending process. And until you get to that point, where you're just churning it out, yeah. If you, yeah, if you're sitting home during the pandemic doing nothing, <clears throat> take the stand-up class. And like you said, it, it's 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 accountability because in my class you perform basically four times. There's three th- times when you get up and you perform just small bits, but then we have a final class where you we will have a Zoom comedy performance and you'll get on in front of a bunch of strangers and it's like you know, it's that, it's that open mic, but everything you've been working on during the class.
1: Right. Right. I'm really looking forward to it. So this starts on March 23rd. How long does it go for the class?
2: It's a full 10 week. So it goes through, let's see, it's May 25th, just before or after Memorial Day. It's, it's a long time, but this pandemic, you know, we're coming out of it. It, it, It's going to be, it's going to be, you've got to be ready to get out and do it live. So it's kind of, everything's divided from how, how you start learning the fundamentals, going into crowd work, and then finally ending up on the nuts and bolts of how to build a comedy career with your performing um, throughout. So I've systematically set it up that by the time you're done, you should be a lot further along, and I think have a lot more confidence in your ability to write comedy and perform comedy.
1: You've done this a few times, you said. Have you had any feedback from the people who have taken your class?
2: I would say Yes, and it's been yeah, all all very positive. It's 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 really nice when people say, "Wow, I, I did not, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know." Some people said, "You know, because uh, I have been doing it for a long time." They talk about, you know, the encyclopedic knowledge. I don't think I have encyclopedic knowledge, but I, you know, I started off with some of the greats, and I, you know, I was uh, emceeing clubs when Robin Williams would run up and do a bit, and back in the fall, uh, yeah, pretty much all. I don't know if it's all five stars, you know, people don't, they, all, they don't, always fill out surveys, but I got a lot of very positive yeah. feedback.
1: That's great. So we've got 10 weeks and we've got a performance. Can you go over what the modules would be in the different days?
2: Yeah. Well, the, the very first one is starting off with your comic persona. And it goes to a lot of different areas of, okay, who are you? What are you trying to say? How do you say it? So you've got to figure that out. You've got to figure out what you're aiming towards in the next um class we really get into the writing of it and there is an acronym uh that i use to go through all the, the exact how you how you write from the twist to the exaggeration to comparison contrast juxtaposition it all sounds very technical but once you break it down and look at other um, performers you say oh they're doing that oh they're doing that it's like when you study michael jordan you begin to pick up a couple moves uh, okay. and then we move on then, then you're going to perform. So after two weeks, then you write your material and you perform it and you and you get it up in front of the other people and we critique it. Then we move on to things like crowd work. Crowd work is very important because some people know how to write material, but they don't know how to move on to crowd work. And so mm. there's a lot of things that come together with you have to know how to write on your feet. And so that's, again, the, the fundamentals at the beginning of the class, and then we build on that. Mm. And after crowd work, we move into, well, what is it like when you get in front of in front of hecklers what is um original premises versus hack material um how do you perform in an increasingly pc world how do you deal with all the problems that stand-up comics have Mm. and then you perform again and then we move on as we're getting ready for our final class i go i have my 10 commandments of being a comedian and that's how to prepare for each performance and there's a whole list of things you really have to do so that when you set foot on stage, you don't go, oh, oh gosh, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You're prepared every single time. And finally, as I talk about the nuts and bolts of the marketing and getting out there and how to perform, um, it's, it's the, the, the electronic press kit. You know? So when I say nuts and bolts, I'm your mom and pop comedy shop. Mm-hmm. I write it, I perform it, and then I, I send it out there and I produce it. So I do everything from A to Z, and so we go through a lot of that.
1: Wow, that sounds great. I'm excited. And this is starting on March 23rd. Where can people get information on the class and find you so that they can get signed up?
2: Yeah, uh, the easiest way is my email, and it's simply info at robertglee.com. So info at robertglee.com. You write me. I mean, they can go to my website, which is Uh, Mm robertglee.com. But if they want to contact me about the class, just put info at in front of it, and there we go.
1: And that'll be in the show notes too, folks. So it's very easy just to scroll and get info at robertglee.com. If you want to get serious about stand-up comedy, I know Robert from talking to him on the podcast, and we've interacted after that. I know he's a stand-up guy. I know he's putting together a very good course, and I am stoked to be on it. Why don't you just take the course to watch me? Because you can see how terrible of a stand-up comic I am after five years. Maybe I'll get a little better. I don't know.
2: <laughs> well, let, let's say it's guaranteed. You'll definitely get better. There's okay. No
1: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for uh, talking to me about this, Robert. I'm going to be uh, totally stoked to take the class. And, folks, it's info at robertglee.com. Just uh, shoot him a message. And if you sign up, just let everybody know that Scott from Behind the Bits sent you. Thanks for being on, Robert. I want to talk about the gentleman I'm bringing up. It's Corey Ryan Forrester, and he's been featured on HBO, ABC, BBC, CBC, Esquire, Forbes magazine, and he's a contributor for the Huffington Post and the Bitter Southerner. Um, He's also got a popular podcast called Through the Screen Door that I want to talk about a little bit. It is uh, Corey Ryan Forrester. Corey, let's bring you up. What's up, Scott? How are you? Corey, I'm really glad to have you on. Um, as I said, I'm a big fan. I've been following the, your uh, video exploits for quite a while, and it's uh, it's been really cool.
0: Well, thank you. I'm glad to be uh, on this show and actually talking about stand-up comedy yeah. <laughs> once in a while. Because uh, you, know, you can probably imagine there's a lot of people that they found me and don't even still know that I'm a stand-up comedian. Yeah, uh, because they found they saw my videos and we've been during a pandemic, so it's not like I've been posting. Hey, I'm about to be in Portland. I'm about to be in Seattle. So it's re- this is really nice to be talking about the thing I actually love. Yeah, and in reading your bio, it
1: looks like you were from a very young age just smitten by stand-up comedy. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, that to me, I'm one of the very few people that is doing what they said they were going to do when they were five years old. Like I, and, and, uh, I used to be the type of person that, you know, because I I was able to find success in my dream job that I was always like, Oh, you got to do it. You got to go for it, man. You know, I've I've since learned that I got very, 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 very lucky. And that most people can't do that because most people at five, uh, want to be Superman and that job doesn't actually exist. But when I was a kid, um, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the, like, I'm talking about very early memories when I I don't even know if I can walk yet watching, uh, Johnny Carson with my dad. And then of course that moved into Leno, which I've actually found in recent years that I think my dad liked Letterman more as a, as a person, but he was so loyal to the tonight show because of Johnny that he always just watched. Like, it's really weird that my dad's like that, but he's like, no, I think Letterman's funnier, but you know, (laughs) it was the tonight show. So (laughs) I would watch the tonight show and stuff with my dad. And like, I was all, like, I always had a, a bedtime, but for but my dad knew how much I liked the comedian. So if there was a comedian on, I could stay up a little bit later uh. and watch, the, watch the comedian. And I saw how the comedian made my dad laugh. And I thought, man, I really want to do that. But like, I also thought and this, I guess this is just how kids think. I was like, yeah, but those guys, you know, they're all from New York and California. I can't, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. And then one day when I was a young kid, I was sitting, Chris uh, crisscross applesauce, as I'm told they say now, on my grandmother's floor. And on comes the television, this man by the name of Jeff Foxworthy. Uh-huh. And I hear him and I see what he's, and I'll, I'll never forget this in my life. The joke that he told was uh, if you're, I'm butchering his voice, like, if, you're, <laughs> if your new TV is sitting on top of your old TV, <laughs> you might be a redneck. And I, and I heard that joke at my grandmother's house while her new TV was sitting on top of her old TV. And I was uh-huh. like, oh my God, this guy sounds like me. And he's saying things like from my experience. And that's when I knew I could do it. And uh, so just uh, for it's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. And I started doing it when I was 16 and I'll be 34 this year. So I've literally been doing it most of my life. Wow. Now it's
1: kind of funny. You mentioned Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy. I know the guy that he originally pitched if um, you might be a redneck too. Um, It was another comedian and they were working together, I think in Wisconsin or Chicago. Uh And uh, he pitched it to my friend and my friend said, that'll never work. It's a gimmick. That'll never work. (laughs) Isn't that great? And that's another reason why you never, ever listen to other comedians when they give you advice. You got to do your own thing.
0: (laughs) No, absolutely not. Like comedians are the worst for advice. I I had to learn. It took me a long time to learn that, that the, the comedy club owner who taught me the most was Michael Alfano in, in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he the best advice he gave me, it took me so long to realize it, but I would come off stage and he would be like, you're playing in the back of the room. He's like, you're absolutely killing those guys back there, but those guys are never going to buy tickets to see your show. Uh-huh. Like you, you can't think, like he goes, there's so much stuff that I've heard you do that when you when you see the other comedians not respond to it, you stop doing it, but the audience loves it. And you have to understand that you're up there for the audience, right. not for the comedians. It's like, if you're good enough, those guys will like you. And realistically, when those guys hate you, it probably means you're doing really good. Um, uh-huh. and, and that took a long time to realize that comedians don't necessarily give you the best advice. A lot of times I'd say that, that person, it's, it's very possible that they really did like the, you might be a redneck and they were upset that they didn't think about it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That's funny. Now, obviously, you're smitten by comedy at five, but when you became like a teenager and you were really getting into studying, it, who who were the people that you really thought were the best ones out there?
0: Well, I still to this day, the guy who sticks with me more than anything, God rest his soul, is uh, Tim Wilson. I oh, I love word. him. Yeah, I Tim, loved him. Yeah, Tim was Tim was the best. When I was um when I was 15 years old. I, you know, again, I'd said my whole, my whole life, which up until this point had only been 10 years, but my whole life, I went to be a stand-up comedian. So me and my buddy, Robbie, he was a couple years older than me. So he had a driver's license. I was 15 years old and we went and we snuck into the comedy catch one night to see mm-hmm. this guy, Tim Wilson. Now backstory a little bit further on my relationship with Tim Wilson was that when I was a kid, uh, my dad, well, he still is in marketing, but when I was a kid and radio was a lot bigger than it is now, Dad would do all the advertisements for the radio stations, and he would get to meet all these dudes who came in to do radio. Like all the comedians always did radio. He, you know, he has so many stories about hanging out with James Gregory and dudes like Tim and Killer Bees and all these guys. Mm-hmm. And he loved Tim Wilson, and they kind of had a they had they got along. And and Tim would always give him CDs of his just for free, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time um, when I was a young kid, my dad lost both of his parents very uh, early. Um, and like within a year and a half of each other and mm-hmm. he was the only child and he didn't have any other family. So my dad just, you know, went from family to no family really quick. And, yeah. and he was like, uh, he went through a huge depression where my dad's always been the most fun loving guy, but he didn't smile. He didn't laugh for, for, for years. Mm-hmm. And then one time uh, my mom just decided, Hey, we gotta, we gotta get out of town. We gotta go on a trip to, to change your attitude or something. So we go to Florida and we're driving down the road and I just remember They're not arguing, but there's just like the silence is deafening. As they say, Uh my dad's super upset and my mom got tired of, uh, the car not having any noise in it. So she put in a Tim Wilson CD and my dad laughed for, I mean, for an hour for the whole CD. Uh And I just remember thinking like even more, I was like, I got to do that. Like, Uh look what this guy on a CD just did. Like he just changed my dad's life in this moment. We're going to have a good trip because of this guy. And so then I got older and I realized, like, oh my God, this Tim, that Tim Wilson guy, he's at the comedy catch. So me and my buddy, we sneak in to the comedy catch and we sit in the back and we're watching Tim Wilson. And like, as you know, there's nothing like live comedy. Like as funny right. as he was on the CD to me live, oh my God, this yep. guy's amazing. And I remember my buddy, we were walking out and he just goes, man, you're never going to be that good. <laughs> and and, 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 I, and I was just like, I don't think I am like it changed my life. Like actually seeing the art form done, I realized how much work I had ahead of me. I realized that like the, my, I, I used to think like, Oh, when, whenever I get my driver's license, I'm going to go to the club. And I, as soon as I start, I'm going to be like Adam Sandler. I'm going to ma- be famous by 18. Like, yeah. That's no problem. Then I saw Tim Wilson's like, I'm not even close to that, Yeah, but I made it my goal to get as good as Tim Wilson. I've never achieved that, but it's still my goal. And, uh, I was 16 when I started. And then at 22, uh, I got to open for Tim. It was oh, the craziest. Wow. It was it was awesome. So like, yeah. um, I was able to get comp tickets. I brought my dad out. You know, like it was a big deal. And then the next time Tim was in town, the club owner called me and was like, "Hey, Tim asked specifically for you to open for him." And I'm 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 losing my mind. Yeah. And then Tim comes up to me the first night and he goes, "Hey, we ain't gonna have an MC. We're gonna do a two man show. That way you can do thirty five. All right." <laughs> And I'm like, this is great. And then I I always, from then on, whenever Tim was at the comedy catch, I opened for him pretty much. And uh-huh. in, in his later years, Tim, uh, Tim diabetic, he wouldn't sell merch after the show. He wouldn't even talk to anybody. So I, but I was selling merch and Tim So I would I would make like 800 bucks a night because people wanted to buy something yeah. and Tim and Tim wasn't out there. And uh, I learned so much from that guy, both good and bad. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to speak ill of the dead. I loved him, but let's face it. He got in his own way a lot. Yeah. Um. Uh, but I was, I would emulate him for so long until finally, you know, Michael Alfano was one of the guys that was like, Hey, Tim was better at dealing with hecklers than you are. You should just shut up. Yeah. You know, like, look, Let Tim do that. You're going to get your ass kicked.
1: Yeah. You know, what was funny about Tim was that he did play to the back of the room. He was really yeah. not, he was really not in anybody's court. He said whatever he yeah. wanted to say. And it just, it just turned out to be good with the audience too.
0: He was just so brilliant that it just kind of, and, and there are, you know, there are comics, comics who also get mainstream appeal. Like, uh, regardless of how people feel about him now, Louis C.K. sort of fit that mold yeah. where like comics loved him as much as audiences loved him. But us- Brian Regan's one of those guys. But yeah. usually usually, if someone's really, really loved by the masses, comedians are like, okay, whatever, you know, uh-huh. which is so stupid, which is so dumb. Yeah. I'm so over that now. Like I can't tell you how many times I've had to look at someone and go, you couldn't follow Dane Cook on your best day. Yeah. yeah. On your best day, you right. couldn't follow. Him, so quit talking <laughs> shit.
1: Yeah. So thinking about that first time you got on stage at sixteen, obviously you weren't really old enough to be in the comedy club. What what was it like an open mic or what what yeah. was
0: it? So it was it was an open mic, but that so this is any actual comedians listening. This is going to uh, blow your mind. I actually, the first time I ever performed, paid gig. I got paid $100 Ooh, to nice. host. I know. For the record, uh, before I get ahead of myself, I didn't make another dollar for another, like, five years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I This was during the time of, speaking of Dane Cook, the time of MySpace. Yeah. And, uh, like, there wasn't really a YouTube. There wasn't Facebook. There wasn't anything, but there was MySpace. And on MySpace, the only kind of creative outlet there was, aside from that like, posting videos wasn't a thing yet, but... There was there was a blog section, and I had a blog where I would write my funny jokes and stories and yada yada. Uh-huh. And this dude from Chattanooga uh, followed me on there, and he messaged me one day, and he goes, "Hey man, are you a stand-up comedian?" I said, "No, but I sure would like to be. You know, I, uh-huh. once I once I'm able to drive and get to the club and stuff, I'm going to do that. But I'm just working up the material now." And he goes, "Well, um, if you can if you can get to Amigos Mexican Restaurant." um, on this Friday, whenever it was, I don't remember. Um, and, uh, if you can host this open mic, I will give you a hundred dollars. And as soon as he said hundred dollars, like, well, I'll figure something out. You know? <laughs> uh, cause this was, uh, this would, I mean, I was 16 years old. So this is like 2004, uh, a hundred bucks was more than it is now. Is basically all yeah. I'm saying. Yeah. Um, cause gas was like 80 cents. So, um, I was like, okay, man, but I don't really know. I don't have much material. And he goes, all this stuff that you write, man, that, that's material. Just say that, just say all that stuff. So i was like, all right. So I take what I think is like 15 minutes. Turns out it's seven. You know yeah, how that goes? Of course. Yeah. And I go there, but that was, that was enough to open the show and then introduce all these other acts. And I, and I really, my buddy filmed it on tape, like an actual tape. You know, I really wish that I still had that. Well, there's part of me that's glad that I don't I know (laughs) that it'd be hard to watch, but I just remember, I remember being up there and my leg shaking so bad that there was no way people weren't noticing. I mean, like my knees, literal knees were knocking and I'm just kind of getting through it. And, uh, it, I mean, look, it, it didn't go that well, but when I was there, one of the guys that was doing the open mic was this guy named, uh, Wade Cardwell who turns out booked the B room at the comedy catch. And I got to be buddies with him. And he was like, I told him it's my first time. And he's just like, man, you know, I booked (laughs) the B room. If you want to come anytime, you know, come on. And we ended up developing a friendship. And I was just at the B room every day in the grill, the giggles grill, it was called. Uh And I didn't, I didn't miss one opportunity. I mean, this is what I wanted to do. So it wasn't like once I started doing it, i'm i'm so glad i'm so fortunate that like i didn't go oh that was way harder than i thought and i wasn't as good as i thought i was just like i i I know i can like i know mm. i can do this so i just kept i ate shit for a long time mm. and then finally one day it's not like one day oh i was this great comedian but one day it just the moves kind of clicked you know <laughs> and i was like okay i know my jokes might not be the funniest, but I know how to write them and I know how to tell them. So, mm-hmm. and, and the thing is, you, you know this, like when you're – I don't even count really the years from 16 to like almost 24 because who the – what 16 to 24-year-old knows anything to talk about? <laughs> right. Like Like now I will tell you this. In those eight years, I was a master at talking about my ding-dong. Yeah. You know? Oh, like, yeah. I still, but the, the good thing is, is like in those eight years, even though I didn't have anything to talk about, that's still eight years of stage presence that I got. So by the time I found out what I wanted to talk about, I knew better than anyone at my level how to do it.
1: Yeah, it's funny you talk about that, uh, the young kids, because, you know, one thing I don't miss during the pandemic is open mics because oh. it was, uh, you know, before I'd go up, it'd be eating ass, eating ass, eating ass, yep. dicks. Yep. It, it was just, yep. it was, it was just all of that. And it's, it's okay. I mean, if you can make it funny, if, if you can make anything funny, that's okay. But most of it wasn't. So, you know,
0: it, absolutely. It, I mean, I don't, I don't believe there are like, obviously, hack premises is such a thing, but every, like, I don't know. Uh in a couple specials ago, Brian Regan did an airplane joke and it's like most yeah. people would tell you, Yeah, oh, you can't do airplane jokes anymore. It's like, right, but when you think of a good one you still try. Yeah,
1: no doubt. And I think it's kind of a rite of passage. You gotta do that shitty stuff for a while in Absolutely. order to, in order to know what's good. And and a lot of the first years you're on stage, it's just getting to know the stage and the microphone and how to breathe and look at the audience and stuff like that. I mean, that's in the first years, that's actually more important than the words.
0: Without a doubt. That's why I'm like, so glad I started when I did. Like I've always thought, man, maybe if you didn't start so early and maybe if you went to college, then when you started, you would have had more to talk about. And I think that's undeniably true, but like you can't replace those like, again, by the time I'm 24 years old, I have eight years in, mm-hmm. you know? And again, like I said, even though I don't know what I'm talking about, that I had the stage presence. Right. If you if you do stand up, you know, I was I was the house MC at the comedy catch, so I'm doing all the shows in the main room and Giggles Grill and the open mic across town. I'm doing like at least eight sets a week, not in New York, you know? So mm-hmm. if you can get on stage eight times a week for like seven, eight years, you're gonna, if, if, if the audience if the audio is stripped, you will look like a stand-up comedian. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you just look, you're like, this fucking guy and looks like he knows yeah. what he's doing.
1: <laughs> and that's that's half the battle. Yeah. Now, your, your subject matter, you know, I went through and watched a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of the old stuff. And uh, it's funny, uh, a lot of it was in Huntsville, and my son lives down in Huntsville. So, uh, Rocket City City's the best, man. And we're uh, my wife and I are uh, planning an escape route to Huntsville right now. I'm in Indiana. So, but uh, we uh, we love that city. It's, it's great. Yeah, I mean, all the breweries are just worth it. But the breweries uh,
0: are fantastic. And next time you're down there, go to G's and get you some soul food. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's the best. I'm two hours away, and I have made the drive just to get. Oh G's. wow.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, so thinking about your subject matter, I mean, you you you've got a pretty, I guess it's a pretty. Uh, it's a point. It's a point of view. You've got a point of view, and, and it's basically okay. I'm the southern guy, but guess what? Not all southern people think this way. We're not. We're, we're not all red state people. And you, you do it. In, I think you do it in a way that you can make everybody laugh because you're getting the the right right wingers to laugh at themselves a little bit. And, and they do, I know they do. Uh, And then you're, you're getting, uh, you know, us, us more liberal guys to, uh, laugh along with you. Is that something that you went into intentionally or did, did Trump help that, you know,
0: (laughs) Trump, Trump put it on steroids. Yeah. We'll We'll put it that way. Like I've always sort of been this way. Um, like to me, to me like comedy is always sort of like going against the grain and sort of being contrarian. Mm -hmm. Like when I was living in New York, I remember I was living in New York pre-Trump. He had just announced that he was going to run. I've still got the New York post that, that has, you know, Donald Trump announces candidacy and I remember picking it up like, fuck it. All right. You (laughs) know? Uh, but up there, I remember in New York, which is like, people think of as like, you know, coastal elites, uh, liberal safe haven. The thing that those comics were doing was like going against liberalism. Like that was their contrarian thing. Yeah. But me up there, it was, to me, it was, con- was like, well, what's, what do people mostly expect of me as being a Southerner? They'd expect me to be super conservative. I go against the ground. Now, again, I didn't just decide I'm going to be this way because it'll be funny. I just was that way, and then I was like, that's a really, like, nobody's doing that. Like, everyone, uh, and that's why I became really good friends with Trey and Drew, because independently of me, they were doing that, too. We all had this collective idea of, there were two types of Southern comedians, and there has been forever, pretty much. You've got either lean into it real hard and go full cable guy, which Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. I love those guys. Mm -hmm. And... I would like to state for the record, anytime someone says, oh, you're like the opposite of the blue-collar comedy tour. I'm not trying to do that. Mm. Um, I love those guys. But, yes, I do have a different point of view. Mm. I look up to those guys is what I'm saying. But you was, it, it was either go full cable guy and be the um, uh, blue-collar comedy tour, or if you're a comedian from the South, you drop your accent completely like David Cross, <laughs> yeah. and otherwise nobody would even know you were from the South. And that's how you, cause you're like, well, I want to talk about smarter and more liberal things. And if I have this accent, nobody will pay attention to me. Uh-huh. And we all had the mind of like, why not do both? Like mm-hmm. just be proud of both things. Like mm-hmm. don't drop the accent, be as loud as everybody else is. Um, and say the thing that's on your mind and who cares if that's different. Hell in this industry, being different is so rare and yeah. a great thing. So just do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, at the beginning, I mean, same guy I was talking about Michael Alfano as much great advice as he gave me he also was like hey this ain't never going <laughs> to he's like he's like you need to be clean you need to clean everything up you need to quit being so divisive and now granted i can't argue that like my earlier my earlier years in comedy wouldn't have been better to me if i had done all those things right. but i stayed the course and it now is paying off and i'm so happy that i did that because now i get to be uniquely me instead yes. of being instead of being a guy who like you know there's a lot of people that like finally this year were just like okay i've got to draw a line in the sand fuck donald trump yeah i was like i've been here the whole time you know I mean?
1: <laughs> welcome <laughs> yeah. to the club yeah
0: <laughs> yeah welcome to the club yeah
1: So in doing that, obviously you, you had a period of where you're trying to learn how to do that on stage. Did you, did you run into any times where that just really backfired on you?
0: A couple times, but like, I wouldn't say severely. And I think it's a credit to, so I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee or close. I'm from Chickamauga, Georgia, but the biggest club was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm. Chattanooga, Tennessee is a liberal city for Tennessee. Mm. You know what I mean? Like if in, in any other, like if you put Chattanooga, Tennessee up north, they'd be like, this is a, a conservative paradise. But yeah. here, <laughs> you know, they have a art district. So mm-hmm. um, what I'm saying is at that club, it was a fairly conservative crowd because there was a lot of older people. The young, hip, uh, liberal types, they weren't going to the comedy club on Brainerd Road. Mm-hmm. So I had a fairly conservative audience who I was having to get these messages across to. Therefore, I had to learn how to say it without getting the shit beat out of me every week. Mm. And so I found a way to give my opinion. I remember the first like really super divisive, I guess, uh, political joke that I did was about, and this will date me a little bit, how long I've been doing stand up? Don't ask, don't tell was still the policy in the military. Mm. That's, that's not been a thing for a while, but it was a thing then. And I had a joke, that ended up going from a bit to a chunk to like a 20-minute whole thing Mm -hmm. um, about how ridiculous it is that gay people couldn't be in the military. And I did this whole act out of these two guys in a foxhole and, like, bombs are uh, blasting down on them, Mm -hmm. and they're both scared for their life. And the other one just looks over and goes... "Mm -hmm." I'd sure like to blow you right now. And I'm like, would that ever happen? Like that's never, that was pretty much the, that was the whole, the whole idea of the bit was like, why would you worry about that? Like right. when is that opportunity going to present, present itself? Yeah. And like so many times I've never once believed that I could change someone's mind completely. I don't think anyone can, but you never know who's on the fence and just hasn't thought about it some way. Yep. And I had so many people that would come up to me that I know are conservatives. They would go, dude, you know, that is kind of ridiculous. Like they're like, you know, I'm not like, I'm not like saying I'm, I'm for gays. I'm just saying like, you're right. That, that is a little bit ridiculous. And I was able to like, the only way that it would go over is if I was talking to a conservative crowd. Cause like, if I was just doing that in front of my crowd now, it's like, we know they're just, (laughs) yeah, they're just
1: nodding Um, their heads. Yeah. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that happens a lot on this current tour because it's our crowd. And that's what every comedian will always want is like, you always want to find your crowd and yeah. then sell tickets to your people, but you do find you're going like, well, it's just confirmation bias and they're applauding more than they're laughing. So now I've got to find a way to be even goofier about this or make them think about something different. Maybe yeah. I'll even say something for five seconds that I don't even believe in just to see what they say. And then yeah. you'd be like, I'm fucking with it, you, you know? But like, yeah, I had to learn how to say how to basically make common sense out of these things to where, people who maybe didn't agree with me at least could understand my point and not want to kick the shit out of me.
1: Mm-hmm. How do you come up with your bits? Cause you hit on something the uh, about the uh, don't ask, don't tell joke that it was just a short bit. And then it became more like
0: a 20 minute thing. How, yeah. how do you work those out for me? that's why the pandemic's been so difficult and why, cause I've done a bunch of live the, the zoom yeah. shows or whatever. And I have to prepare for them so much differently. Cause I have to write everything fully out because I'm not able to just like riff. Cause yep. I'm like to, in order to riff, I need like the art, uh, like, Oh, that worked. Let me, I'll keep going on that. Yeah. I have no idea on the zoom, but in life, like basically usually what happens to me is the punchline comes to me first. Like so, I'll watch something on TV or somebody will say something and I'll, have a comeback or something and I'll be like, Oh man, that's a great line. But I obviously you can't just walk on stage and say a line, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'll go, all right, let's build up to that line. And then it's like, why would I say that line? Okay. Now we have the premise. So I know where I need to start and I know where I need to finish. So my first night of working on a joke will be like, all right, I'm going to start with this and I'm going to get to here. I don't know what else. I don't know what the middle (laughs) is. but i'm going to basically just go and riff on this topic and bleed it for everything it's worth until i start to get tired of it or the crowd starts to get tired of it and then i'll hit them with the punchline and then that joke's over and then after i feel like after i do that about 50 times with like like then the next night i'll be like okay last night you did it this way that part that didn't work i like live edit in my head mm. while i'm going And I'll add something else. Oh, that worked. Keep that. And I never really write it down too much. I I record myself on my phone sometimes, way less than I should. For the record, Mm. I I should do it way more. But I just kind of do it a bunch until I've done it so many times that I've basically, I've basically done it wrong so many times Mm. that, like, what was it? Was it Michelangelo that said? I think it would. By the way, not comparing myself to Michelangelo. Yeah. I'm just saying they were like the, the way to make a statue is you take a piece of marble and you take away everything that isn't the statue. Yeah. Yep. You know mm. that's kind of what I do with a joke. Like I I say a bunch of shit and then I take away everything that wasn't good and then after that it's like well you fifty other audience has have approved all of these words uh-huh. and then if I think of something funnier I'll, I'll add a tag of course right and that's how a five minute joke for me. If I come up with a five minute joke in January, I guarantee you it's going to be bare minimum 12 to 13 minutes in December. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. And then probably back to eight if I'm, then when I shoot it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's uh, the, it's great that you can do that on the fly like that it's it's hard for some people like me it's really hard for me to think that through um, and i have to record myself every single set because yeah. and, and i'm i'm a, even though i'm an old man i'm a much newer comic and it's very um, it's very telling on uh, what's funny and what's not funny because when you're up there you're just in the moment you don't know yeah. you you, you, sure. you get an idea but you don't know what exactly this has been okay Political arguments I can get into, and it doesn't even phase me because I know where I stand, but comedy right. arguments really piss me off sometimes. So there's this argument going on, and I shouldn't have even watched it. I didn't comment, and I shouldn't have watched it. It was on social media about American comedy not being a meritocracy. How do you feel about American comedy? Do you think that you, if you're funny enough, you can do well, or do you think that you have to know people?
0: I mean, look, there's examples of both. Mm. What I think is, is that the cream ultimately does rise to the top and that if you just because you know somebody, you still have to bring it. Mm. Like, the reason that Taylor Swift was able to get seen so early is because, yes, her dad had some money and he was able to put some of that money into distribution of a record. Mm-hmm. But the reason that Taylor Swift still sells out Madison garden right now is because she was good the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like Nick Kroll, for example, Nick Kroll's dad's like a billionaire. So yes, it was easier for Nick Kroll to like hang out with the upright citizens brigade. He didn't have to go to work. He could mm-hmm. do all like, obviously there's privilege involved, but if Nick Kroll sucked, people wouldn't let him just ruin their shows all the time. Mm-hmm. You know? you know what I'm saying? It's so, like, I get both. I get both. Like, like for instance, uh, I grew up white and uh, my dad made a pretty good living. Things have been easier for me than they are for some black comedians I know that are from the same area. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them, however, I still am funnier than them Mm -hmm. and I've worked harder. But again, I was able to work harder. Sometimes somebody has to go take care of their family and I didn't have to do that. But again, like, That whole, like, oh, well, they're only there because of this. It's like, I think that'll get you, like, one shot, you Mm. know. I think that'll get you one shot. And then if you suck, then you want... Okay, for instance, like, Chet Hanks. Do you know who Chet Hanks is? I don't know that name. Okay, it's Tom Hanks' son. Okay. And he really wants to be a rapper. And he's Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, well, but the thing is, you've never heard... Like, he's got every opportunity in the world. He's not that good of a rapper, and therefore... He's not number one on the billboard chart. Yeah. So Tom Hanks being his dad didn't mean shit. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. If he was really, really good, then Tom Hanks being his dad means everything. Mm-hmm. But like they'll get that'll get you the opportunity for sure. But if you suck, like, you know, Kevin Hart said one time in uh um comedians and cars getting coffee, Hollywood is undefeated. Mm-hmm. Like you can't beat Hollywood, like If you're good, you can make it for a while and then Hollywood's done with you. If you're not good, they're not just going to let you not be good. Like, Mm -hmm. Polly Shore is a guy who maybe kept getting the opportunities because his mom was Mitzi. And I don't know, but it's not like he's selling out arenas. I mean, he does comedy clubs and stuff. And I'm not going to shit on Polly. I'm just saying, like, I don't know, man. I just, I think that you do definitely have to have the talent.
1: Yeah. And I, I agree. Um, Thinking about your, when you were in the thick of it and touring, did you see anybody, you know, obviously you get different features and stuff like that. Did you see anybody that you thought was better than uh, where their station was right now?
0: Oh, I mean, the, for, dude, I know plenty. That, that's why I'm saying it's not always this way. Cause to me, Dale Jones is one of the funniest people they have mm-hmm. ever lived. He's so funny. And He's a he's a nationally touring headliner, mm. but to me, he should be a household name. Mm-hmm. And I can't figure it out. I don't know why. Like, I mean, you do have to have luck on your side. Like, it it's just one. Like, sometimes you just, you know, like I mean, shit, man. I'm just now. It, it, this is my ego talking. I'm just now getting the recognition I think I deserve. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 17 <laughs> years into the game, but Dale's been doing it for 25 years, and and I think he like he's the guy I've probably learned the most from as a comedian. And he should be further along. And again, like, it's not that he don't work his ass off and it's not that he's super funny. I don't know what it is. Uh Sometimes it's like if you'd have been born five years earlier or five years later, you know, and you just never can, like, who knows? Like, I don't know, man. But, yeah, I see those dudes a lot. And that's why it's hard for me to just say, oh, well, if you're funny and you bust your ass, then you'll make it. But you also have to, like, what is making it? Mm -hmm. He pays pays all his bills by being a stand-up comedian. To most, most, most comedians, ninety, I'd say ninety five percent of people who ever try to do comedy would love to be where he's at. Yeah. But to me, he should be way up there. Right. Like, like that's the thing. For like, dude, I can look at a, a I follow Nashville stand up on Instagram, and I love do, I love Zanies, I love Nashville. It's a great place. Mm. They'll post like a, um, a list of like open micers going up on a specific night and it'll be like a, a forty deep list and I won't know one person on that list. Yeah. And this is a stand up comedy scene two hours from my house. There's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people trying stand up comedy. And there's a good chance I'll never see any of those people's names again. You know, yeah. that's just how it goes. So it again, it's just really hard for me to say, well if you work hard enough you'll make it when like a million people are trying to do what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm.
1: At what point did you find out that you needed to have some business sense about you not just the art of comedy in order to um first of all not get screwed on yeah. uh, on money and stuff like that when did that occur to you
0: honestly like maybe three years ago <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and like like i already had a manager and agent when it occurred to me uh, like dude i can't tell you like we when we started the well-read comedy tour, like I didn't really like in my mind, it was like good right on. I should get this. I should be able to just go on this tour with this guy and sell out these theaters. And now I don't have to worry that my manager takes care of this. My agent takes care of this. The club's full when I get there. And I was just getting drunk and, and writing my stupid little jokes and performing and getting better. And, Uh and I, and I was like, Hey man, you know, like if I'm the best, then the money will follow. That's how that works. Um, Which I think, you know, that's always been my attitude when my friends are like, don't you want to be rich? And I'm like, I want to one day have the best television show on TV. And if you do that, you will be rich. Mm -hmm. So, yes, I want to be rich. But, like, (laughs) without that first part, no, I don't just want to be rich. Like, I wouldn't just give up every, like, if someone came to me right now and they were like, hey, man. I'll get you a job at this big firm and you'd be making $500,000 a year. Just, uh, I, I'd be like, that's not how I want to do that. Right. Like, I, I want the $500,000, but not doing that. So no, thank you. Mm. Um, but really just in the past three years and and definitely this past year, I've started being a lot more business savvy and a lot more like, Hey, you don't have to say yes to everything or, Hey, you know, don't do this or that's maybe not good. Like I hate even saying your brand, but it's like, eh, that might not be your thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Don't do that. Um, it's a hard thing to do, but at the end of the day, I'm like, now I'm looking for like, okay, well I want like, you know, I've got, let's say I've got this idea for a short film. If I play the game a little bit, and are more business savvy, then I'll be able to make enough money that in like a couple years, if I want to take a whole year off the road and make this short film, I can do that. Mm -hmm. So be smart about it. Like, like I used to think that like you weren't a true comedian unless like if you gave a shit about the business part, then you weren't really an artist. You know what I mean? Uh And I've slowly just been like, no dude, you need like, if you really want to get a lot of stuff done, you need to care about the money. Cause like, To me, it's not, it's not about like, I want to have so much money that I can get a boat. You know, it's like, I want to be able to do exactly what it is that I want to do all the time. And money lets you do that Mm. period. It It just does. Like if I, if, if I had a couple million dollars in the bank, the screenplay I have right now, I'd just go make the fucking pilot. I'd just go make it. It mm. wouldn't matter. I'd just go do it.
1: Yeah. And it's funny, having management, sometimes it puts you in a comfortable position because they're taking care of stuff, but they don't always see the same opportunities as you do, and they don't have the same long-range goals. So you, you sometimes, you know, saying no to stuff is important and also um, understanding what you want to accomplish because, I mean, they're making money if you get booked and you want to do something else. You want to do the short film, and getting to that sometimes is um, contrary to what management wants you to do. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, yeah. and it's not just, you know, having the good business sense, but it's just being professional and, like, in like all aspects, like, you know, used to, I think, I think people like romanticize the drunk disheveled artist and, and, and really at the end of the day, it's like, you know what, no matter what you're doing, no matter how good you think you are, you need to treat people the way that they need to be treated and you mm-hmm. need to respect people's time. If you tell Scott, you're going to do his podcast at four, log on a little bit before four. And, yeah. and if you can't do it, tell him a couple days before, you mm-hmm. know, like, just be on top of your shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's not, I don't, I haven't, um, I actually am sober right now um, and haven't drank in this year, uh, Mm. which I know we're just in February, but it's been no surprise to me that I've, these have been like the most successful four months of my career. Mm. Like I've just kind of gotten on top of everything. And it's like, talent doesn't mean anything. If you don't know where to put it or you aren't putting it somewhere. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like, I didn't really, I never was the video guy. I was never a guy that was going to make videos and put them on the internet. Then we had the pandemic, and, and I was just like, dude, you can't go on stage right now, but you've got this innate desire to create and make people laugh. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to figure something out. And then I did this thing called the Buttercream Dream. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, I've paid literally all my bills with that character mm-hmm. because I just decided, hey, you got to, like, you're not on the road. You got to figure this out. You uh-huh. got to be a big boy. And man, if I'd have figured that out, like when I was 24, dude, I think I'd own the world. Yeah, no <laughs> like doubt. I really do. <laughs> I really do. And like now, it's like oh, I got to make up for all this lost time of being an idiot.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about that pivot you had to do the video because you weren't you were playing to your fans a little bit, but you Hell were yeah. you were playing to a whole new audience that was into the whole video thing. How? How did you, I, and you you got pretty successful pretty quickly. How do you think that that happened?
0: Man, I think it's just one of those things where, you know, they say, oh, there's nothing new under the sun, but every now and then something happens, and they're like, you know what? I've never seen a shirtless hillbilly with a wrestling belt cutting wrestling promos on politicians. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Damn it, that's actually pretty new, yeah. you know? <laughs> and uh, it, it wasn't like I thought to myself, no one's ever done this before I will be successful. But like, that is the reality of it. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a huge wrestling fan have been my whole life. Like I'm, when I was a kid, like I always wanted to be a wrestler. And then I got older and realized like, Oh, they really get their ass whipped. And I'm like, I ain't doing, that. I'll just do the entertainment part, you know? Uh, and so like during the pandemic, it was like, Hey, the cool thing about the internet is, is there ain't no rules. I, like, you can do whatever you want. Like yeah. if you want to be a wrestler Fucking go be a wrestler. Uh, And so I think the reason I've been so successful with it is a mixture of two things. Number one, what I just said, it's new. Nobody's mm. really seen that. Uh, Not that people haven't done fake wrestler characters, but like politically, I don't think. And I feel like at this point, someone would have like, you know, told me about another one. We'd have been introduced. So I'd like to think I'm the only one doing that. But also, I think because I'm literally having some of the most fun of my life doing it, I think that comes through mm-hmm. like it comes through as very off. I mean, I say authentic, clearly it's a put on, like, I don't really, I mean, I have a Southern accent, but it ain't really this, This yeah. <laughs> one, you know what I, like that's, that's a little bit of a put on, but yeah. like, I think people can, like I'm having a lot of fun with it. And when I'm having a lot of fun, uh, I write better and I write yeah. more creatively. And it just like, I'm so, I can't wait to put one of those out and it's never been forced. Like I've never once been like, uh, I got to do a buttercream dream. Yeah. video today. It's just, <laughs> I'll be watching CNN and something will piss me off. And my <laughs> inner monologue, I didn't realize has always been that guy, Yeah, you know, but me screaming, I say me screaming isn't good, but actually the last two videos I had go viral was just me screaming. Mm-hmm. But like me, to me, it was like, all right, I can be this guy who just screams his opinions, but, but it's like, that's going to come off as more mean. But if I have a wrestling belt and I, make some joke then it's like it's funny and it's one of those ways where like i can get people that don't agree with me to listen to my point of view because it's so ridiculous
1: Mm -hmm. and 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 i'm not i'm not dissing it at all but it 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 gets to the point where it's on the edge of cartoonish and that is good good. because the cartoons can get the get the stuff across and not get in trouble for it and uh I make no
0: bones about it. Bugs Bunny was one of my biggest inspirations in comedy. (laughs) My top three inspirations in comedy are Jerry Seinfeld, Mel Brooks, and Bugs Bunny. There you go. Cartoonish (laughs) as a a compliment.
1: (laughs) Now, thinking about you did another pivot, and just recently you're doing the uh, Biden press secretary thing. How's that coming across?
0: Kenny Ray, dude, it honestly, like. The first, I'll say this now. Obviously, I've got a way bigger following now, so you have to take that in consideration. Mm. But the first two Kenny Ray videos did better than I remember the first two Buttercream Dream videos doing. Yeah, and I think that's another one of those things where the the reason that that the pivot, I did the pivot there. I've been doing a little less Buttercream. Now I do butter. I do a lot of Buttercream Dream on Cameo. He's paying the bills. But yeah. Because like, <laughs> I was talking with my wife, and I was like, you know, for four years I've been on the offensive because I've really hated Donald Trump and Donald Trump's been in the white house. I said, you know, what if I go on the defensive? I've never really come at it from that Mm -hmm. position. And there's no more defensive person in the world than a press secretary for somebody. Their literal job is to defend the president Mm -hmm. on what he did and spin things. And I thought, what if like my uncle was that if he had that job, like what would he be saying? And basically that guy. If the buttercream dream is my inner monologue, whenever Ted Cruz says something stupid, uh-huh. Kenny Ray is my inner monologue. Whenever I read something that somebody I went to high school with said that on, like, commented that was just so stupid. Like, did you see Joe Biden stutter and the, the inner monologue that talking is hard? Are you kidding me? You get up <laughs> there and try to do uh, like <laughs> that's my inner monologue, and so that comes out in those videos, and I love doing them. They're fun to write. And I, again, I get to come from a more defensive place instead of screaming.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I really enjoyed it, and obviously my uh, my former guest Brent Terhune was uh, a guest on it. He he played the Alex Jones character.
0: He did, and I love that. Yeah. I was so glad. Yeah, he reached out to me, and he was like, "We got to do a Kenny Ray or something." Yeah. And Br- Brent's a blast to work with, man.
1: He's just he's, such a he's, he's just such so a sweet funny. guy. Yeah. Now. I don't like to talk about myself but in because you've done these videos I've got You would, a, you're
0: not you're not really a comedian then are you <laughs>
1: No yeah well not on this podcast I don't like right. on somebody else's I will for hours but right. I've got this character that I was doing Zoom comedy, too, and I got really tired of doing my act, and so yeah. I just started to come up with characters. And I got this guy. It's Eugene from Smyrna, and he's a conspiracy theorist, and but he calls himself a conspiracy provist. And I, I want to tag you in some of these and have you critique them because I, I think I'm on to something, but Please. I don't know if it's enough to even even try to go any further but basically i've got two kids i got baby kid rock and baby miranda lambert they always get in my (laughs) guns and shoot each other and i ground them and stuff and it's 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 a whole thing
0: but well i'd be happy to critique but i will tell you if you're having fun doing them then you are on to something yeah
1: (laughs) well i have really enjoyed it the the thing that backfired on me is i took over my podcast i i said that i hacked into the behind the bits uh podcast twitch or not twitch uh tiktok and and that just didn't go over because it, it wasn't my brand and everybody was like uh what the fuck are you doing and so right. i i've gotta i've gotta make my own channel i guess and do it that way but
0: yeah that I just, whole brand thing man it's so wild when people when you do something that is just a little bit different than you normally do people really kind of lose their mind on that mm-hmm. it's really wild like i've got a buddy and um I posted a video one time and, and like, I'll admit that it wasn't funny. I wasn't really trying to be funny. I was just like upset with how ridiculous the cur- you know, the current situation was. And he messaged me and he showed me that video and he was like, Hey man, I don't get it. And I was like, what do you not get? And he's like, I mean, are you not a comedian? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, this isn't funny. And I'm like, well, I'm also Corey, the person, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> like I, I'm sorry, but I, I think that I'm allowed moments of lucidity like that but yeah. If, yeah if you start doing stuff like like I, i'll uh sometimes i'll post stuff about wrestling and i'll have some my uh, fans that have i guess just signed on to me for my and i'm putting this in quotes scathing political satire yeah and they'll just be <laughs> like i don't understand why are you talking about wrestling i'm like because i fucking like wrestling yeah you know? i'm gonna do that sometimes <laughs> if you don't like it that's fine but don't don't think i mean like I hope that I entertain you, but sometimes what I like is gonna be reflected on my page. Yeah, you yeah, shit.
1: Yeah, and it gets you a wider audience. So you know, yeah. you, you don't and have like to watch it. that if you don't like it. If you don't like the wrestling, then just don't, don't worry, watch it. It's
0: fine. Yeah, it's totally fine.
1: <laughs> uh, thinking about uh, things opening back up and and stuff like that. Do you have a plan for getting back out there and uh, go, going in and uh, performing?
0: nope yeah <laughs> um so here's how it's kind of worked out i travel I, I tour with um two other dudes trey crowder and drew morgan mm. and if we all tr- if we all toured solo i think we would all three already be back on the road doing like some half open venues but basically if we're all three splitting money anyways. Then we start looking at these clubs like, all right, I got to get a flight to here. Yeah. They, they live in California and I live here. So no matter where we play, one of us is going to have to do a lot of traveling. Yeah. And uh, we start running the numbers. It's like, honestly, it makes more sense to just sit at home mm. um, and do another online show. And then we can make money doing that. Mm. But we're not going to make any money doing a half-filled place if it's required to be half-filled. So our whole thing is like, we're just going to wait it out until we can go back to doing it exactly the way that we did it before. Mm. Now, I think that might be a lot of wishful thinking. Eventually, we might have to just be like, all right, man, look, the world's just going to be different from now on. This is what we got to do. Mm. Um, but, you know, the vaccines are starting to roll out, and we've all kind of just been like, all right, let's just, you know, we've got we've all got enough projects this year. Just I've been very, very fortunate that it, you even taking my tour salary away from me, I was able to do well this year because of uh, new podcasts and you know this buttercream dream character I created. That like, dude, I'm making enough money on, on Cameo to live, which is the crazy. I can't believe that people <laughs> pay money for me to give a shout out on Cameo, but they do, and it's <laughs> and it pays the bills. So I'm fine right now, and you know, luckily I live in uh, I live in East Bumfuck Georgia, yeah. uh, and so my my mortgage ain't nothing I can survive. But I think come August, if things aren't like starting to, if we're not starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, we're going to have to have a big conversation, but you know, who knows?
1: No doubt. Um, before we wrap up here, can you talk a little bit about the podcast?
0: Yeah. So I just started through the screen door, uh, podcast with my co-host Matt Coon. And it's sort of my, I mean, obviously we get political just because a lot of stuff is going on. That's too hard to ignore. I mean, I live in Marjorie Taylor Greene's district for Christ's sake. Um, (laughs) but the way the elevator pitch no it's okay it's it's rough um the the elevator pitch for that show is basically it's a pop culture podcast with a southern twist it's sort of my love letter to variety shows and uh like johnny carson and stuff like it all it usually always starts out with me doing a monologue that is very often intentionally corny Uh like intentionally like late sixties, early seventies, Johnny Carson monologue. Mm. And then we usually do like a sketch and then we'll talk about, uh, you know, movies, the Marvel universe. Uh, we'll do, we have this segment called bread or wine where we watch a classic movie and decide how it's held up over time. I usually do, uh, this segment, which I call uh, a redneck movie monologue or a hillbilly soliloquy, whichever (laughs) one you prefer. And it's where I pick a certain type of redneck and I perform, a famous movie monologue as them, such as I've done uh I think I did the um oh shit, which was it? I did Glenn Gary I did the famous speech from Glengarry Glenn Ross as the uh the Southern Baptist preacher's wife who's always about to cry. Uh, <laughs>
1: I gotta hear that one. That's one of my she, favorite movies. She
0: sounds listen, Scott. <laughs> I need y'all to hear me right now. That's the Southern, <laughs> that's her. And so she did the, your coffee is for closer. <laughs> hey, listen. Um, so we have a lot of fun on it. That's sort of my passion project. Um, I'd always wanted a side uh, podcast project from because I do the Well Read podcast with the guys. And we always recorded that on on the road. That podcast sort of became like our audio journal of being on the road mm. and I always want to do something different, but I was like, God dang, it's hard enough just to get this one out when we're traveling and doing all this stuff. And then when the pandemic happened, you know, you, I think for the first, the first two weeks of the pandemic, I was like, ah, this ain't going to be no big deal. And then when I realized it was going to be a big deal, I let myself have like a couple of breaks. Cause I was like, Hey man, you've been traveling for like four and a half years straight. You're allowed to decompress. And then after that, it was like, okay, dude, all this stuff that you've been saying, well, I would do it if I wasn't on the road. You got to do it because if you don't, then you have to admit that you're full of shit and you weren't going to do it. Obviously the first thing I decided to go with was watching the wire. Yeah. So once I got that out of the way, <laughs> then I started a podcast. One
1: of the best shows ever, man. I've, man, it I've watched that though. three times.
0: Yeah. I've, I've done twice now.
1: Yeah, I've done that in the X Files three times. Those are my babies. I just
0: started the X Files. Okay, literally two days ago.
1: Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna love it. I mean, I'm having a good time. Yeah, it's great. the The last few seasons were got kind of weird, but yeah, it's yeah. it was a great show. It goes. Um, so, where can people find you if they want to see your videos and stuff?
0: Um, you can go to watchyaboys.com. dot That's watchyaboys.com. dot com. That'll okay. take you to my YouTube. You can also just go to coreyryanforster dot or as I tell everybody, just Google me. I mm-hmm. come up, yeah, all sorts of stuff. You know, all my Twitters and stuff like uh, that. Yeah, I really
1: enjoyed the outtake that you did of uh, buttercream because oh, uh, thank you because I do some promo stuff and I've done I've r- recorded some Eugene stuff and. You know, sometimes it's 20 takes to get it right, and there's just a whole bunch of fuck,
0: fuck, fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I had somebody ask me yesterday. They were like, why don't you post more buttercream dream outtakes? And I say, there's only one reason, and that's because the buttercream dream is usually falling. (laughs) This is one in a million, son.
1: Well, that's great. Well, Corey, it, you've been a great guest, and I'm really glad we got to talk. I, I I've learned a lot, and uh, I I just uh, wish you the best because uh, you know when I when I move down to Huntsville, uh, I know that maybe we'll run into each other, and Please. and you can see what a shitty comic I am, and that that would be great.
0: <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Scott. And I'm being serious; it was really awesome to sit here and talk about. Pretty much nothing but comedy for an hour. Yeah, I haven't yeah. got to do that in um, a long time. I don't yeah. know how long. It's been a well, while.
1: Well, great. That's what this show's all about. So uh, you, you fit the bill really good. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot, Corey.